hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. Welcome back to Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. Toby, Mr. Toby Haydock, hello. Hello, Joe. Nice to see you. How are you? Uh, I'm a bit chilly today. I'm on. I'm standing on Wendley Moor. <laughs> oh, and there seems to be uh, an irritating noise, uh, sounding a bit like a kazoo in the background. <laughs> well. Uh, I think I know how to do this, Joe. I think I'm I'm learning to speak your language. Are, are you telling me that you and a friend have polished your helmets <laughs> in anticipation of going into a wet, dark cavern? Frequently, yes. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good. They see. I, I knew I could do this. A lot of evenings end that way, you know. Um, God, what have I done to you? I'm, no, I'm doing this to everybody now. Corrupt, corrupted. I don't know. If Fraser Gregory just tell us both to stop it, you know. Um, <laughs> hello. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm all right, thanks. Yeah, yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing this. Uh, I'm a bit bushwhacked. I'm I'm trying to write this uh, this this Quatermass book. I've I've essentially taken February off in order to just write from morning till sort of afternoon because I get a bit tired, and then I'll maybe podcast or do something else in the evening. But um, I, I, I'm getting old, I think, Joe. I think my concentration is not what it was. And Good grief, you're a Doctor Who fan. You'll never get old. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's certainly not. There's the chapter I'm working on at the moment. I, I'm, I kind of set myself, you know, two days to polish off, and uh, I'm still doing it. And we're, you know, we're nearly two weeks into February, so uh, it's going to be a long February. But um, if I, even if I don't done as much as i wanted to get done if i continue doing what i'm doing by the end of february i will have got more done than i had done at the beginning of february but uh we're looking to publish it in sort of uh may or june because quater mass is 70 in july and so uh so i really do need to stop thinking about it and uh and 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 do it but it's um it's a bit of a grind you know it's not like writing fiction or like writing jokes where you can sort of you know free form and have fun and you, you know this i have to get dates right and i have to find bits of information i have to put them all together so that they cohere and it's um yeah it's a long old haul so i hope some people buy it well i know i will after the education that you gave me on my hamster extra episode about quatermass uh i'm looking forward to uh learning about it in even more detail and, and i saw some feedback of some people uh when you put the link up to the youtube video people are a bit hungry for this aren't they some people are well i i hope so i hope so i think it's worth there being a good book out there and i hope the book i'm writing is is good but i do i do tend to disappear down rabbit holes uh joe so so where some people you know, might to do an actor's biog, just nip onto IMDb and do a select five or six credits. I I've gone into currently I've gone into a bit more detail than that. Also on every single actor that's credited in Quatermass. Wow. Now it may be that my editor looks at those bits and goes, <laughs> "We don't need to know about the man who played Tipsy Man in episode one of the Quatermass experiment." Well, I. I do. <laughs> it deserves a recognition. Uh, so, he, he did the time, okay? Yeah. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how much of that stays. It's certainly not going to underrun in terms of word count, but uh, you know, you have to. One has to. One has to surrender to one's editor. And if if you know if I I know what I would like to read, but I also know that the that that I perhaps have quite bespoke tastes and that that most people don't perhaps need to to go into as much detail and also i think i do the narcissist thing of i sort of show my working so instead of just going uh and on this day this happened i've sort of been going and on this day uh, this piece of paperwork says it looks like this happened but actually i've dug a little bit further and uh, uh, that didn't happen and then uh, and, and so then i sort of come to the conclusion now it may be less 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 vanity is required to just go on this day this happens but then there's a part of me that knows goes but if i do that somebody on twitter will then go oh yeah but what about what it says on this bit of paperwork i say well yeah then that's wrong <laughs> because so i'm i'm sort of i'm heading off imaginary twitter criticism which 
which is not a way to live. No. It's not a way to live, Joe. You can't yeah. live thinking, I better not say that in case some wanker on Twitter, <laughs> I think you'll find me. And I, well, I think you're pretty unfiltered as well in your podcast, which I really, really love. Although I've heard you say that a few times. Oh, good grief. Should I say that? Like, what the hell is going to be the backlash on this? Do you know, I think you might have made a bind for yourself because everybody in my circle, well, I was at the pub yesterday. And you have to listen to this for a second. So I do apologize. I know you're very British and you don't like a compliment, but I was in the pub and we were talking about your too much information and that people just can't get enough of the detail, you know? So I think you've oh. made a bind for yourself. In <laughs> now, the expectation is this book's coming out, and it's going to be a lot of detail. I don't think people are going to be disappointed. Oh, good. Well, that's okay. At the end of the day, I tend to think that the thing to do, and this is a comedian's trick actually, and 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 all comics go through this, where um, they often make the mistake of doing what they think the audience what they think the audience wants from them so i would i would sort of quite often go on and and pretend not to be as middle class as i am and i'd try and be a bit sort of more rough and tumble and try and sort of coarsen myself up a bit because i think although and actually i became a much better comedian when if anything i was honest or actually if anything i i slightly exaggerated those things that i thought people wouldn't like i actually made a a, a virtue of them rather than tried to to hide them and with the with the doctor who certainly with moths you know um actually not hiding behind anything and just doing yeah. at the end of the day doing what i thought i would like and you sort of go and so now i kind of go well i'll just i'll it's the same with the documentaries i i wanted to find out what happened to peter r newman so i, I managed to get a budget in which to do that so now i just make the programs or the podcasts and that's the beauty of podcasts because it's such a crowded market i hate that word mm. that you just you go well it doesn't matter if some people who want a doctor who podcast don't want what i do because they'll be catered for somewhere yeah. else all i can do is what i do and what i like and if people do like it that's lovely and if they don't well they're catered for brilliantly by other people who do different things and that's that's all well and good that's the lovely d democratic nature of uh of podcasting but it, it's also uh an indicator to just to do what you do and 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 mm. try not to worry about it although as as i know because we have little private conversations on facebook stuff not worrying is not something that comes easily to either <laughs> of us <laughs> well mind you so i promise you guys we will start talking about doctor who and the silurians in a minute but you know this happens when you and i get together um i still think uh, one of the most extraordinary podcasts you put out was the one about alcohol in doctor who yeah and i almost braced myself to listen to that and then when I finished, I thought it was extraordinarily moving and really funny. And that's a hard line to, to kind of uh, tread. But it was the, I, sort of I the, the the vulnerability in it that was so interesting. And I don't think a lot of people would go there. I, I worried about it because I do also slightly mistrust this world we live in where we share everything. And we also expect everybody to cater for our vulnerabilities do you, do you know mm. what i mean I, I i i worry about going down that hill because i, I sometimes see that the, you know the vulnerable can turn into the dictator then and go well if you don't you know if you you know if 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 if, if you're not cognizant of my 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 needs um you're you're some you're oppressing me or whatever um and i and i i do sometimes worry about because sharing booze is a funny one alcoholism is a is a funny one because it's 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 a concurrent process of going um this has to be all about me it's the only way i can sort it out but also i'm spectacularly unimportant and i need to get over myself and those two things seem like a contradiction because you're at one hand going i need to totally sort of self-care and on the other hand you're going i, I need to stop worrying about myself and, and think about the world and, and the fact that I'm not a very important part of it. And and then you realize not to worry so much about yourself. Um, and, and so doing, doing a podcast about being a boozer and tying it in with Dr. Who I've, I've tried to do it with stand up where you sort of talk about, I've, you talk about, I've talked, tried to talk about um, drink and it's a difficult one because it puts the audience slightly on edge because they mm. go, Oh, I don't, I don't, either I don't want to think about this or I'm uncomfortable with this level of honesty. And so as an exercise, I just wanted to see if I could make it funny 
It was. Uh, and if I could tie it in with Doctor Who, because you can tie anything in with Doctor you Who. You did do that. And I think the, the podcast is a slightly better medium for it because you're not in a room full of people going, well, this is awkward. Yeah, there's, there's, there's an intimacy, <laughs> I, isn't there, between you and the listener as well. It's sort of a one-on-one. Yeah. And, and I hope, I hope that in... Well, I mean, my main hope is to be entertaining and to make people laugh. But I've found, and this was through, must say, my Doctor Who scarf. Uh, if if I'm if I'm sort of honest about my experience, well, people can always see through fake fake stuff anyway. Mm. But I don't mind. I mean, I don't mind talking about myself. And when sometimes people go, "Oh, it's terribly brave," and you go, "Well, I'm not sure it is." It's it's people people who like the sound of their voices and want to be the center of attention quite enjoy talking about themselves. So I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure that's my definition of brave. Um, but obviously, alcohol is quite an awkward one. But I, just as an intellectual exercise to go, well, I'll see if I can make that funny. Um, I was quite, yeah, that was quite, I was quite, that was quite fun to see how that turned out. And that's that's sort of something I learned as well. So I did a demons of the Punjab commentary recently, and that went out about two weeks before I lost my mum. And long story short, um, I found it really, really moving because it was dealing with death and, you know, what happens after these aliens coming in. And some of it, okay, she didn't believe in aliens coming along at the moment of death, but some of it tied into um, some of her beliefs. Um, and so I sort of dropped all that information. There, and I had a conversation with a podcaster a couple of days ago. We did a podcast and he said something. He goes, oh, I'm going to cut that out. I was like, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Like, don't don't sit there and air in your dirty laundry. But like, you know, I think sometimes it's quite healthy. Anyway, I, I absolutely I, I love that piece. And I it was funny, but you said something as well in there which really really made me think. Uh, yeah, at one point you said, you know, how much you loved it when you're having a drink, you know, and and to say that as a recovering that that's incredible, incredible. Anyway. I'm going to take well, us back round to Doctor Who and the Silurians. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you. I mean, you can't lie. Um, you know, I'd love to be able to go. I don't miss it at all, and I. But mm. that would be a lie. Of course, I do. Um, and there's no point. There's no, you know, there's no. You, there's no point denying. <laughs> there's no point denying reality. If I want to deny reality, I'll watch seven episodes of Doctor Who. See what I did there. Yeah, you were very clever. Yeah, well done. Uh, well, okay, we'll, we'll go into episode one in a second, but I've got a quick question for you before we do, and that is, yeah. do you think that from the War Games to Spearhead from Space, is that the most dramatic tonal shift that Doctor Who ever had between seasons? Well, this... This thought is fresh on my mind because I have been doing the garden this afternoon and I was listening to you doing Megloss. And I think, don't, 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 didn't, don't you guys bring it up in all, or Planet? Because I've listened to you doing Planet of Evil and Megloss today. Um, you, you did, and, and, and you were talking about it and you talked War Machines to War Games to Spearhead. You also talked season 24 to 25 and you talked season 17 to season 18. Mm. Um, I, I I think, and having done running through corridors where I did actually, you know, watch in order every day um, to, to, you know, to get a feel of it unfolding, although in a speeded up way, the, the most seismic change, <clears throat> excuse me, to me, did seem to be, there's cosmetic changes and obviously tonal changes between 17 and 18, which are, which are quite huge, but you still do have the same doctor and companion. Um, 24 to 25 well it's just like they seem to have worked out how to make it slightly better yeah. um uh, i mean that you know in terms of production good god well i've i'm just doing remembrance for my podcast funnily enough and um absolutely loving it and, and going gosh this is a it is like a different program to because mm -hmm. i've i've already done dragonfire and i feel a bit sorry for dragonfire but i i would say that some of it is is today barely transmittable whereas remembrance actually holds up extremely well um I think just because it's black and white to colour, just because Spearhead is all on film, just because it's a complete change of personnel, I think it has to be, I think War Games to Spearhead is an extraordinary change. It's a, and, and of course, there's no story quite like Spearhead, although 
you know, the, the production values of the subsequent three are still quite strong because they're all seven parters and they've amortized the budget in a clever way. And there's still quite a lot of film, even though they're not all on film. And they've got that sort of grit, gritty, as far as Doctor Who is concerned, flavor that then goes away for the, the Let's and Dicks era which comes a bit more matey and chummy and uh, uh and bazoinky um but bazoinky. Um, but but yeah bazoinky i just kind of know what that means <laughs> but i'm just yeah you know what i mean it, you know joe grant and the doctor they have quite a bazoinky uh, 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 uh sort of dynamic between them um i swear but you I, said I, in, I think uh, running through corridors you know the it was like watching terror of the autons was like swallowing down like a whole load of skills in one go was it you that said that i i think i think rob might say that oh okay. yeah <laughs> it does rob feel like says that. that yeah yeah after it certainly after inferno um but no war war games to to spearhead is a huge change and it's a very smart um revivification of the show and i i love season seven Although I acknowledge that not all Doctor Who can be like season seven, much in the same way as I love the Caves of Androzani. Although I acknowledge that uh, not all Doctor Who can be like the Caves of Androzani. Uh, there are funny moments. You know, a lot of what I love about Doctor Who is that it's a story that exists in the great mosaic of Doctor Who that is almost atypical. And you go, but it's only because of the broad canvas of Doctor Who that this story can exist. And therefore, I love it more than I might love a more typical Doctor Who story, but then what is a typical Doctor Who story? I'm I'm still not sure I I know. I think there are there are moments of humour in series seven, but for me it does feel like the most serious season of Doctor Who. And and in many ways the most adult season, because it's sort of mature storytelling, it's adult ideas i think even the length of these seven parters and and how much time they have to sort of delve into the characters and feels like that the fact that it's set on earth like it's just nothing else quite like it is there in the run yeah, and, and i sometimes wonder if because i think doctor who means so many things to so many different people and, and the stories that we like have so many different contexts to what why we like them or why we might not or why they're special to us and why they're not and that and that and it can be that can be so individual you know um you know we might have all come from the same store to the same story one when we were a kid one when it was on super channel another when it was on vhs another when now when it was on blu-ray and it and, and you know the, at different points in our lives and all of that and i i think because i lived in the shadow of the cancellation mm -hmm. and because i am the youngest of four and, and my older brothers had liked doctor who but had put away childish things there was very much a desire in me for doctor who to be taken seriously and to not be a children's program because i was the youngest i didn't want to be seen as a kid um the 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 hiatus had meant that Doctor Who was not liked by the upper echelons of the BBC. So I wanted it to be good and people to take it seriously. Um, as that went on, you know, it was less loved by the general public. So I, I always watched Doctor Who thinking, oh, but if the general public, in inverted commas, watched this, they'd like it. They'd see that it was good. So I wanted no sort of little dips in production value or no bit that might jar to a modern audience because I would fantasize about, you know, everyone suddenly walking in when I was watching a Doctor Who and go, oh, Toby, you're right. It is good after all. And then the world would be a better place and Doctor Who would be loved. So the more serious and the more grown up, in inverted commas, like season seven, like the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era, are the ones that that i seem to be forgiving most of mm. because they're the ones i think that maybe fulfilled those criteria for me i was gonna say you would not be disappointed with this season with those criteria do you know what you just said there about being scared about people walking in there was um, i wonder if i should tell you the story or the moment because it's such an agonizing moment now at through adult eyes but i had this bit that i just was desperate for someone to walk in and see just to see just how amazing doctor who is and i used to rewind this bit and wait for my mother to walk in the room i'm like right she'll see it in a minute she'll see it she'll absolutely love it it was in survival episode three i'm not going to tell you what the bit is but <laughs> it was <laughs> it's a terrible moment now it's very you're not going to tell me which it's the bit where Ace is going, uh, when, you know, when all the, the, the supposedly athletic looking uh, sort of gymnasts are advancing on Ace and she's screaming, you know, help me. To me, through my young eyes, that was the height of drama. You know, <laughs> that was my moment. 
Really? <laughs> Shameful, isn't it? Oh, bless. Oh, well, I'm glad I'm not. I'm glad I wasn't the only one that was uh, that was, you know, rewinding and uh, and hoping that somebody walked in at a particular point. Um, well, look, you and I could talk and talk. I'm going to skip us into episode one if you are ready. Okie doke. Ready when you are. Okay. So I will count us in then in five, four, three, two, one. And off we go. So uh, when do you remember first watching this? Well, this is all wrong for me, you see, Joe, because this is in colour. And for me, when I first saw Doctor Who and the Silurians, it was in black and white. I was, I, st I started getting um, bootleg videos from a comic shop in Wolverhampton called The Place. And I live miles away from Wolverhampton, but I had a friend who was a, who was a builder who would go and get, go to the cash and carry there to get his supplies. And I'd seen he was going to Wolverhampton and, and, and there was adverts for the place in this uh, uh, Doctor Who magazine. So he basically dropped me off there. And anyway, long and the short of it, the guy there did videos and, and I got Hartnell and Troughton first because they were, you know, ancient and old and the best. But I thought, well, I should get some Pertwiz. And I said to him, which one's best? And he went, oh, Doctor Who and the Silurians. And that really surprised me because it was, I kind of knew it from the book. Um, I, I realised later it's because it was easier for him to run off a seven-parter. Right. That's why he that's why he recommended. But so this was the first full length Pertwee I had, I think. But it was in black and white from a, an Australian print. Gorgeous quality. I mm. mean, much better quality than the than the stories I've been used to, and and in a way, possibly much better quality than the than the color we now have because it's a sort of compromised color. Although this is looking better than the first attempts at color that I saw many years ago so it was one i had on on video for a long time do you think uh, this but works in, 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 quite black, well and in white. black and white then do you think this works better in black and white well i mean you can't appreciate it unless you've seen it in the original black and white to uh misquote uh general um uh, christopher Plummer from that star trek film um uh i i certainly think it works in black and white and it worked because i had it in such good quality that was a real difference because so much of what i was watching at that time was compromised by multi-generational uh, you know metamorphosis uh, whereas this was pretty much one generation off air so it was glorious um, and it does work in black and white i had a bootleg copy so my dealer was up in scotland um and i think he listens to this podcast now so darren i know you're listening all right um <laughs> And he he sent me down. I think it was a Scotch long play tape with Doctor Who and the Silurians on it. And honest to God, it was like looking through mud watching the thing. Oh, really? Yeah, it was. It was. It wasn't great quality, but I didn't care. Honestly, I was looking out for scan. I, I, was, I was examining this thing in microscopic detail, and it was you know it was Doctor Who from before my time. You know, I was desperate to see it. Yes, although unusually for me, because this was one that I had the book of as well, I was never quite as excited to collect the ones that I felt I sort of knew. And and because this was one of the early books as well, Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, mm -hmm. in fact, the first chapter I ever read of a Target novel was the last chapter of Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, because it's only two pages long. And it's called The Lie. And it's the little coda where the Doctor, you know, where, where the ending happens. But I, it was I would taught myself to read reading Doctor Who books, um, but it's quite hard to read a whole Doctor Who book when you're like six or seven or whatever it was. But but I figured I could I could do that chapter because it was only two pages long. So I so I always knew that the ending of the Silo of, of I was going to say slash the cave monsters. I've, I've ruined Doctor Who's one of best bits for myself. <laughs> um, and we will we so will... so because I kind I, I kind of knew it. I wasn't that sort of bothered about it except of course it's so different from the book mm, yeah 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 and we'll, we'll kind of look at that as we, we we've got seven episodes to fill so we'll um yeah talk about the i think it's an incredible book the cave monsters it it is i always found the malcolm hulk books harder to read uh and and in fact quite often gave up on them or quite often skipped a couple of chapters um 
certainly the doctor and companion introductory stuff to get to the meat of the story maybe um uh, but but I, I i i appreciated them more when i was at school and had, had maybe read all of the terence dicks ones and then went back to the malcolm hulk ones which i found just a bit tougher as i got older of course i appreciated them more for their subtlety and for their uh you know their novel approaches to things like doing a chapter from the maggot's point of view or or the or the one in uh for, for this where uh morker you know he, he he doesn't know what anyone's called but he knows what buttons are but uh that's you know but it's okay uh, uh or, or that that sort of that sort of imaginative stuff i thought much enjoyed much more when i was older than, than when i was young because i was reading them at quite a young age um so any subtlety was sort of lost you know so the so the terence sticks books were much easier to navigate in that way i think we were sort of sort of spoiled by just how economic terence dicks was with his prose and just how quickly yeah. he could get to the point in a very i've been listening to the target book uh novelization readings recently and by they go by the five hours goes by in a lick I don't know. <laughs> um yeah i want to talk john pertwee yes because uh well he's okay. not in a very he's not in a particularly good mood is he <laughs> i don't well, mean John of course i mean the doctor yeah he's um i i don't i don't know what i think of john pertwee's doctor he's he's a funny one isn't he um because he is quite a miserable son but he's he's great you know he is he has that sort of aplomb doesn't he he's a natural uh you know any number of people could dress like john pertwee i think larry turner kind of says it in in that documentary doesn't she but 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 he's the only one that can sort of get away with it mm. you know that with the best will in the world i would love to look great in a frilly shirt and a cloak but i would look like a git who lives with his mum uh, <laughs> uh and i'm not tall i don't have i mean he's taller than me but he also has um great posture you know and great presence uh and and against that the sort of clothes that he wears he doesn't look like he's in fancy dress i don't i don't ever question what john pert was wearing in the way that i would if somebody else was wearing that stuff and i i remember loving this bit where he goes well it's not worth 50 million oh, pins uh, if uh, <laughs> if it doesn't work to, to peter miles um uh and and he's got that line he does doesn't he when when um official people say to him uh, may i ask what you're doing and he goes well you may ask <laughs> yeah. uh, which is obviously his very his cool put down uh that he's that he's obviously rehearsed i feel um, like it is but in he these is... six and seven stories he has these wonderful lines as he's introduced um to the authority figure you know when he comes up the lift and he's like my dear fellow i said we don't happen to have a pass because i don't believe in them that's why not yeah god he's so rude i love it yeah, well, and then and then he gets introduced to Ralph Cornish, doesn't he? He goes, "Let me explain this to you in very simple terms," <laughs> until he's told who Ralph Cornish is, and then of course he gets a little bit obsequious. Uh, I love Norman Jones as Major Baker. Um, he was a lovely actor uh, who never I could never get an interview out of. Uh, he uh, he spent his last days in a in an almshouse in Telford, which is actually where my mum works. But um, wow. I think he was quite sad about how the the profession had uh, had kind of let him go a little bit, which is a shame because he had a great career and he's a very very good actor. And I love this uh, the profile between Major Baker and uh, and the Brigadier there. Um, it's a it's a lovely cast. Uh, well, you've got Fulton McKay here, who you know, I always yes. thought he's resisting the urge to smile in this story. Like I always feel like he's he's just on the verge of a laugh. Well, I think he's I think he's playing sort of amiable and open. Uh, that that's his way of of uh, of deflecting any sort of attention to himself in a way by being well. I'm just amiable and happy and easygoing, rather than doing that sort of uh, no nothing at all acting that uh, you know shady characters can do. So I think it it works. It's kind of nice that he has that that sort of very pleasant sort of uh cheery cheery demeanor what's lovely then is when that mask starts to slip you know when the doctor's at his cottage and you know he can't yeah. keep up that, that mask anymore it's really interesting yeah the doctor's really annoying <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I I think also I'll say this now so I don't forget. I think with Fulton Mackay here, uh, this I think this is the story. I'm not gonna don't write in, but I think this makes this the story that has the most credited cast who are OBEs in it. I think Kinder has the most cast, but because Glenn Murphy and Graham Cole are extras, so they're not credited because Anna Wing and Richard Todd are also, but they're not all, I think Anna Wing, Wing was an MBE or something, but there's three people in Doctor Who and the Silurians, Joe, who are OBEs. Go on then, tell me who. Uh, Fulton Mackay. Of course, yeah, I, know, I figured that was one. Jeff Jeffrey Palmer. Oh yes, of course. And uh, Ian Tolbert, who plays Travis, who's the guy in episode four when... Um, uh, when Jeffrey Palmer arrives, he sort of has a chat with Peter Mills and uh, won't let him answer them and, and keeps saying, "I've already done that, sir." Um, and he's also the lawyer in uh, in the Leisure Hive, but he's a he's a, a an illustrious theatre director uh, who's directed a lot of theatre for Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. So his OBE is for his services to theatre. You uh, never know who is walking uh, through a Doctor Who story in a bit part. You, you, you do not. You do not. When you said Peter, uh, then I thought so, you were going to say so Peter well done, Miles Doctor Who and the Silurians. For a second, when you said Peter, no, Peter Miles should have had an OBE. I know. <laughs> Peter Miles should have had an OBE for services to snarling villainy. I love Peter Miles in this. Um, I think Peter, Peter Halliday should have had an OBE for. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question. Now, were you on the commentary for this story? No, it was just before my time. Okay. Uh, I'd have loved to have been on the commentary for this story. Peter Miles is clearly an eccentric fellow, and um, he's having almost a spat with Caroline John at one point, where he's almost assuming the role that he's playing in the story in the commentary and going, you know, these horrible lizards taking over my... And Caroline John's going, Peter, you know, it's not real. Like, Did you hear it, this, what, this commentary? I... Uh, yes, I'm sure at one point, because um, because um, Peter's Peter says something like, "Well, we should let these green people in," and I'm sure Jeffrey <laughs> oh, Palmer God. goes at one point, but that's that's because you're a bigot, Peter. I think <laughs> I think there is a kind of, and and I think that was Peter Miles having fun. I right. I, I had the pleasure of uh, consorting with Peter Miles on a couple of occasions, and I would say his sense of humour. Uh, was was very much Peter's own, and he wasn't necessarily didn't necessarily check whether you were you were along the same ride as he was on before he embarked on it. I remember because I did do the the commentary for Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and he spent quite a lot of that yes, insisting yeah. that Noel Johnson's character Charles Grover was just like Davros, <laughs> and I was slightly baffled as to why he was trying to talk about Genesis when we were talking about Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and I think it was just a trick of his because he remembered Genesis better. And so he's going, right. well, Grover is like Davros. <laughs> and we go, yeah, all, all right, Peter. He keeps uh, asking Terence Dicks, doesn't he? What do you think, Terence? You know, like, <laughs> well, well, can I, I, I might have told you that I don't know if I've told. Forgive me if this is a story you've heard before. It's a story that I always think, well, I don't tell because it's, um, <laughs> it's breaking the professional code. But it is a funny story. Um, there was, when we were doing the invasion of the dinosaurs, commentary um i was there with terence Dix and richard morris the designer uh and terence said so who else have you got coming today and i said peter miles and he went oh god and he <laughs> said to richard morris the designer he said he said do, do you know peter miles and um richard morris goes uh, no he says all right it's just the same as all the parts he plays uh, and so i got the impression that that terence was not simpatico with peter's it sets of humour, shall we say. Uh, and when we were doing the sound check at the at the top of one of the episodes, um, Peter was doing his, well, I think Grover is like Davros. Uh, and he said, and he was going, and Terence, what do you think? Terence, can you hear me, Terence? And there was a pause and Terence just went, yes, Peter, every golden word. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, I had breakfast uh, with somebody yesterday in london who interviewed peter miles once but um he gave his number out um he and peter miles phoned him up and he just went hello and i'm your new friend for this year and apparently he heard from him quite a lot <laughs> he kept oh, inviting really? him to jazz clubs oh well i i did i did enjoy 
Peter's company, but quite often with these uh, actors, when you meet them, you, you you sort of have to try and reassure them that you're 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 there because you really like the work, and it's not just to do with Doctor Who. You mm. know, I always make sure that I talk to them about stuff that isn't just Doctor Who, and I sort of like you know I'm an admirer of you. It's not just that you've got some tangential relationship with Doctor Who, um, and and that you know mollifies people and makes people go, oh well, thank you very much, and oh that's nice. And people usually sort of go because I didn't I don't think anybody really has really heard of me or thinks I'm any good. You know, even some quite illustrious actors, you go, no no we've heard of you whereas whereas with peter i was sort of saying and of course when you're at the rsc you played um you know stanley which is a a, a fantastic part isn't it and 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 instead of going oh, oh well you don't know i see like, yes i know and and uh, so he didn't need reassurance if sure. that if 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 you get my drift peter peter didn't need to be reassured that you know i i was i, I was an admirer of his he was kind of like well yeah i know i'm i'm marvelous <laughs> he tells a wonderful but I did, he was he was good he was good fun he tells a wonderful story about when he was at a convention and Nicholas Courtney became like, well, is it president of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society or something like that? And, and he was like moved to tears that um, that he had that moment. And he he, he says at one point, I think it's in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, where he says, um, I was at a convention somewhere with or without Michael Wisher. I was like, oh, there's a kind of very curt. Yes. It's... Yeah, I couldn't... He had a funny way of expressing things like that. You didn't quite know what he was getting at. And um, yes, Do you know, he, we've been but... spoiled with eccentric sort of um, eccentric older people in Doctor Who. And I, I love them in the commentaries and I love them in the series. You know, <laughs> I mean, the weirder the yeah. best. Uh, and he was an eccentric, but he was also an, a, a, fun, a fabulous actor. And, and I love him as Nida. Um, but I think Nida is an easier part than Dr. Lawrence. And I think he's fantastic as dr lawrence and there's a scene that we will see that major baker doesn't quite close his um briefcase properly there i've always noticed that anyway it doesn't matter um, I, I feel uh, like um dr lawrence is actually got like this restrained anger <laughs> he's he's desperate to let out but sort of you know professional etiquette and all that and the funding and then finally that last scene when he's up on the table it just he explodes it's extraordinary that scene I, I think it's a really well acted death scene because it doesn't attempt to look pretty. Action no, no. and death. Actors love doing death because you can you can do it sort of quite nobly or whatever. It's quite a uh, it's quite a raw thing that. But 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 people often die very prettily in television programs. What I what I admire about what Peter Miles does in his death scene is, and it's the same with fights. Fights always are very well choreographed on television because that's how we expect them to look. But if you've ever seen a fight in real life, they're ugly and slightly embarrassing and awkward. And I th and death is like that as well. Mm -hmm. And I think Peter Miles, it's, it shows a good actor to me, somebody who puts his vanity to one side to, to, to dare to risk to look silly, which I don't think he does. I think he looks utterly real uh in in that death scene because the actor has put his vanity to one side and i think it's a great fantastic uh scene that is in a, a much later episode yeah sorry <laughs> we'll get there <laughs> well what about this very pretty chap who's having a bit of a turn yes, he's, he's one of those actors that we don't know very much about roy brannigan he gets a close-up he's not, not done an awful lot else and uh, we've never been able to find him and did he do any other work? Yeah, he's, he's in a few things at around that time, but but uh, we've never I've never found him, and and nor have uh, the two or three other uh, members of the sort of coterie of actor hunters that uh, that I that I hang around with on the internet. Do you know? Um, um, do you know so one no, thing? I can't tell you much about him. That these seven parters have. And, you know, it's something I'll sort of point... I know TV, the language of television has changed now, and we do things very quickly in a pre-title sequence and set the scene. But this sort of spending an entire episode building one mystery after another, you know, the problems with the cyclotron, uh, the psychological problems of the staff, the horror down in the caves, it builds up the mystery really effectively, I think. Uh, for me, I, I've always felt that the seven-parters seem slightly less padded than the six parters uh and i don't know why that is i don't know if um because they they know they're in it for the long haul they sort of <laughs> psychologically um you know draw the story out 
rather than stick a couple of bits of padding in. So any sort of lengthening is done through story and plot and character. Whereas mm. in the six parters, you know, you sometimes get a, you know, a chase for an episode or, um, you know, a couple of set pieces. Whereas I think in Am Ambassadors, Ansiderians and Inferno, they all seem to be a bit more plot based. Although I can't think of chases in in all of those stories. So maybe it's just my biases showing. But I certainly feel that the seven parters earn their length as as a as a clutch in a way that the six parters sometimes don't i feel um, like uh, yeah there's, but there's maybe a, that's because i also i also like the gritty feel there's like a massive uh, plot tangent in silurians and ambassador death and inferno whereas yeah i always feel like there's a bit of running on the spot in four and five in a six-parter and then we finish the story yeah yeah um Uh, Pert, Pert was great at all of this. Let's not also forget, um, because we've had the first one on film, Spearhead, this is Pertwee's really first time mm. of doing multi-camera drama because he hadn't really done much TV, if any TV drama before. Uh, you know, he's a comic and a radio actor and did film, but, but the discipline of doing multi-camera is very different and the discipline of doing multi-camera drama is very different to the discipline of doing ellie or or comedy so it's it's quite a big ask for somebody to hold a series in a in a sort of medium you're not hugely familiar with i mean um, by all accounts he was a he was a nervous actor anyway insofar as sort of people he probably considered his betters that he was working alongside you know sort of trying to find his name but adding that as well and just taking on this sort of behemoth of a show on his shoulders yes and i and i and i think you know it's well known that the, the stuff about when he was working with trout and trout would like to go off script and and, and put we would rather not and and both of those are perfectly legitimate approaches to acting and if you're if you're an actor that you know that has that has worked out your performance based on what has been rehearsed and a series of cues it's 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 fair enough to be like that. i i love the mercurial trout approach because you get stuff out of left field but they're both but they're both perfectly legitimate ways of working and you can understand why pertly but we would perhaps need to hide behind the technique in a way in order to give him the security blanket which is fair enough um, i was imagine with uh with Troughton, you've got the script editor just off camera going, Oh god, where's he going with this now? Like, you know, like <laughs> what's he doing now? Which is, if you're good at it, that's great, but if you're not, it's a nightmare. So, again, I forgive Troughton anything because I just think he's marvelous, but uh, it only takes somebody to do that and not do it well. And as somebody that has written things, you know, you, you sweat over every syllable, you don't want some actor just wondering and go, Well, I can think of something better off the top of my head. Like, <laughs> get off get lost you might so have, I think um, as, a, as a writer i would probably prefer pertwee chris roach bid me running down from the gallery and say look we wrote those words you say them all right <laughs> yeah i mean the other thing about pertwee is he looks fantastic even in this miner's gear do you know what I, he can he can wear anything well and you get the impression he can he, he could probably use any piece of equipment like a like an expert you know he it's just everything he's so capable and competent which i rather like uh, especially as a contrast to Troughton, for whom everything seemed to happen by some sort of series of accidents. <laughs> Again, I like both of those things in my in my Doctor. I always felt like they with Troughton, the clothes just sort of hung on him. You know, like they were just yes. they were just hanging up. Whereas with, with her, you, you're right. You know the um, the documentary you talked about earlier, where she says, you know, he's so damn sexy. I don't disagree. Yeah. You know, I think he's got a certain magnetism. To, I think it's the authority that he carries. Yeah. Like, I'm he's, never he's uncertain yeah. that Doctor Who is not going to save the day when John Pertwee strolls into a story. Yeah, although, I, but I have to ask you, uh, Joe, have you uh, ever made a dinosaur roar at the moment of climax? <laughs> uh, I'd end as we'd begun. <laughs> I have, yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's an interesting cliffhanger, isn't it? Given the dinosaur doesn't really do much. 
Oh, but I mean, it's such an important part of the book and it's on the cover and it looks amazing. And there's a fantastic internal illustration of this giant Tyrannosaurus and the doctor sort of looking after it. And, and you know, when I was a kid reading those, things, God, Doctor Who in the old days was brilliant. They did things like that, not maths in a lay-by, uh, which, 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 you know, <laughs> I've been watching season 18. You know. Even CSO, is it? That's an actual costume that they built yeah it is the first cso shot later in episode what is it four or five where major baker sees it and it's there's a panel of one of the caves and that's mm -hmm. i think the first cso shot of of doctor who but that uh because the doctor and the dinosaur aren't in shot at the same time is not cso uh and yes but even when it is cso they didn't need a man in a costume they they may as well have just had a model and it was having the man in the costume that made them realize that and go, oh no, we, it could be any size because we're CSOing it. But you only work that stuff out once you've done it. It only becomes obvious once you've done it, you know. Mm. Um, and having had Bertram the dinosaur uh, sort of lolloping about, they then went, oh, why don't we just do it, do it with a model? And, and then we'll do model dinosaurs and nothing can possibly go, go wrong. Um, but you know, well, look, before we out episode one, um, I wanted to ask you if you know about, um, I think I read it in Barry Letts's, uh sort of Who autobiography. Is it Who and Me? Yeah. Where he talks about um, the cave sets being struck and the, the set man saying, basically, look, these aren't going to be ready in time and you're not going to have a set on the day. And then they turned up on the day <laughs> and they essentially had like a set of black drapes or it just wasn't ready to go. And everyone sort of dashed in to make this work do you know anything about that i don't okay <laughs> i've told you <laughs> something then haven't i yeah it was yeah it was, yeah, it was just but one of those examples this... of, of everybody in sort of every production he just said right I, we need help and just everyone sort of came to the set and and assembled those cave sets as best as they possibly could which and that's 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 the magic that's what i love about that's why i love going behind the scenes and love finding out how things were made because those stories of how through endeavor and creativity and sometimes a bit of luck and sometimes a series of accidents uh, you know these things that we know and love manifested themselves not because they were you know flung together by people who didn't give a monkeys but because they were you know they were they were great endeavors often against uh remarkable odds and that's why i'm 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 you know i i i have total sympathy with people who don't care what anybody's called and what went on behind the scenes but i'm always drawn to the story behind the story i mean i'm i'm as interested i think in in how a story came to be than i am in in, in watching the story you know uh, there's that fabulous story isn't it where um Barry Letts is trying to cast Sarah Jane Smith, I think for the second time. This is sort of post-April Walker. And now I've seen her oh, give a performance. Uh, that would have been a very different <laughs> season 11. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it was a script editor or something saying, oh, there's someone that's been in two Z cards. Absolutely amazing. I just love the fact that there's all these sort of pools of resource. You can just go into the next, the next room, you know. Yes, well... That's something to be said there, I think, for having a public service broadcaster with an infrastructure um, where, where you know, people learn off each other. And, uh, 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 you know, as you say, you can you can go down the corridor and people can help each other out and uh, people can expose you perhaps to talent you might not otherwise have been because um, you're, you're all working for the same cause, but maybe getting stuff from from different places. Now everything, you know, now everything is is you know d d done as they're all every, every production is you know is an individual enterprise that you know three or four shows made at the same time might make exactly the same mistake uh or um uh and, and well yeah and i i just think i just think having that building teeming with with talent and industry and uh and training people up so that even people who left the bbc and then went to make films had got the proper training uh, and the proper you know background which then fed into our film industry which means that as a as a country making films we sort of we do punch above our weight and all of that and that all comes from having a creative infrastructure which um 
which uh, I think is harder to have if you don't have a, a public service broadcaster in-house like that old model of the BBC. But then again, I'm very old. <laughs> I love the stories of, um, you know, you hear some of the Doctor Who actors telling about the rehearsal rooms, you know, and you've got the two Ronnies going on over there and to the Man of Bourne going on over there. God, man, it must be a great time to be in television. Yeah, and I mean, it's... Uh... It's, you know, we're very happy now. I do a lot of radio drama and, um, you know, it's 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 a lot easier now that I have this set up here. Um, I've got a slightly better set up in the corner over over there, which I do for something that that uh, had to had to pass technical tests or whatever. Um, but I've, the past few radio dramas, radio four dramas that I've done uh, have been done from here. Uh, and I, it saddens me that, you know, 15 years ago, I was in a green room with Michael Palin and Mark Heap and uh, David, please, you know, and, and, and hanging around. And, and, and part of the joy of being an actor is, is hanging around with other actors and meeting actors you've seen in other things and being able to say to them, I like, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, I've worked with Toby Jones, for example. What's he like, Toby? Um well, I could tell you what his duvet cover's like because he was like me. He was in his house, you know, <laughs> and he, with a duvet over over right. him to block yeah. the sound out. Uh, and we didn't say two words to each other off mic, even though we shared a number of scenes together uh, and did good work. But now, you know, the, the sad reality is that that doesn't probably affect the outcome of the final piece at all. But it means I don't have any good Toby Jones stories. I, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. I, <laughs> you know, when when the technical stuff wasn't happening, I couldn't sort of chill out in the green room, and make Toby mm -hmm. Jones a cup of tea, and us have a chat, and discover that we got mutual friends, or maybe work out a bit of business for this particular scene or whatever. Um, but as I say, the sad reality is it does it does in the great scheme of things it doesn't matter, uh, and, and probably in the great scheme of things it doesn't matter that you don't meet on a monday and rehearse at the acton hilton through to the friday and then record uh, on the friday night you know a lot of old actors say oh but that rehearsal time was important well now one of the skills you have to have as an actor is to turn up with your a game and your ideas fully formed and do them at the run through just before they start turning and then put in a really good performance and there's some damn good acting on telly mm -hmm. right now and it's not and, uh, and would it be better if they'd had five days rehearsal at the Acton Hilton? Well, I don't know, because, this, you know, looking at Sarah Lancashire in Happy Valley or whatever, that's an, a phenomenal yeah. performance. But she has to bring it with her to get there. So, again, we might go, oh, it's so much better to do it like that. But, well, it was great then, and it produced some performances that I absolutely love. But, you, you know, times change, and we do things differently. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's worse. Um it just means that the stories will be less interesting uh, in the future. <laughs> you know, there's there's going to be, you know, there's going to be probably fewer anecdotes, which of things probably doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I think that's a wonderful place to end episode one. Um, you know, you said earlier in this episode about some wonderful chases in um, the season seven stories. Yeah. Is season is episode two i'm trying to remember from memory is that where we're heading across the moor searching for the silurian is that episode two um uh, <laughs> no that's it's more sort of episode three it's more sort of episode three because that it's escaped from doris's barn oh, uh that sequence uh, so so it's episode three that has that that gorgeous location stuff uh but okay. it's amazing well if you hold my hand, we'll head back down into the tunnel and face that Tyrannosaurus Rex. Okie dokie. Let's 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 go and see what he's like once he's got his claws into us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 